Hash House and Circle Up. Welcome to On On, the Hash House Harrier podcast for interviews, history, and stories. I'm your host, Ra. Today on the podcast, let's get history from all the way back in 1965 from the founder of Jakarta Hash, Gordon Bentwan Benton. Welcome, Bentwan. It's an unfortunate name, but there it is. I hadn't understood the connotation of it until much later in history. But <laughs> my, wife, my wife is bent one too. We are together in that way. Now, I started hashing in North Borneo, as it was called then, which is called Saba now. I went up there to build a few things. I'm an architect then. I'm a planner now, but I was an architect then. R- running a branch office, virtually rebuilt half of Jesselton with what they call shop houses, which is a Chinese terrace thing with shop below and living above type of thing. Right. Pretty ugly, pretty awful. Great, great money, you know. <laughs> what year was that when you first went to Sabah? When was that? I went there in 1965. Bentwan, do you remember how you got to your very first hash trail? I have no recollection of how I went to the first hash. No recollection at all. It had been somebody in the expatriate community, obviously, because it was pretty much expatriate-oriented. But the countryside was extraordinary hashing country. Great rice fields, rickety bridges, marshes, bogs, shiggy, as we called it. Great camaraderie and so on. So it was all a pretty new idea. I was really stationed there to finish off some work, get started to schools, very large schools in Brunei, in the Sultanate of Brunei in what was called Brunei Town, which is now called Bandar Seri Begawan. Just when I went down there, I met up a few people I'd come across in Singapore and Malaysia beforehand. The hash had gone on. I had about 40 runs before then. But then there was a bit of a, a confrontation, as they called it, insurance terms, between Indonesia and Malaysia, each vying to take over Brunei which had all the oil. And uh, Brunei was felt very, very weak and they uh, asked the British government to come and help, which they did with a lot of army, helicopters, kicked the shit out of the Indonesians who were really unhappy in the jungle. Hmm. They're uh, agrarian people. Javanese army, as it largely was, very agrarian people. And they're uncomfortable in the jungle. So when they were caught in the jungle, they just didn't like the helicopter zapping them type of thing. I came in at the end of this confrontation, or nearly the end of the confrontation. I, I was part of that first group with military and a bit of Navy and a bit of helicopter pilots and so on, who started up the hash again. That was at about hash number 41, late, late 65. The hash there was very interesting because we were all new to each other and it was a bit of camaraderie. The salt of the Brunei is run, it's a Muslim country, run by the Brunei Muslims. But of course, there was a large population living in the jungle, nomadic people in the jungle, Dayaks and uh, Kadayans and various other tribes who lived out there who had no part in the management and running uh, or indeed the, that education that I was dealing with, which I was building the number one school, as it was, we called it the Eton of Brunei. I don't know if that means much to you. But, oh, yeah. uh, and, and on the same site, we were building uh, a building trade school, which was an excellent idea where we had uh, largely Scottish, by coincidence, retired 
plumbers and joiners and electricians and so on who came and we built working sheds for them where we taught the local people how to do building. And that was a brilliant idea. And they were in hostels, 600 of them in hostels. The school we had was 600 boys and 600 girls. So very, very, that really occupied my, my time setting all that up, getting that going. The hashing there was excellent stuff, largely jungle. And on the hash, only men at that time, right? All men, all men, all men. Actually, most of the expatriate population were men. And many, many of the men were unaccompanied. There were some women with the army. The officers had, had wives, I think, and maybe some of the other ranks as well. Yes, they did. We met the wives and so on socially afterwards uh, on the beaches and uh, in the Yacht Club. And these were places where people sort of met. And that was traditional, every Monday, weekly hash, right? Every Monday, exactly at five o'clock. Punctually at five o'clock. And uh, these were about uh, seven to ten kilometer runs, uh, nearly always circles, very seldom end to end. And we ended up on the roadside somewhere. And the army, of course, were very useful because it was a Muslim country and there was no beer, there was no drink. Indeed, the restaurants used to serve special tea. <laughs> a teapot full of beer and all that sort of stuff. So we had ways of circumventing that rule. But hash itself, the army brought the beer and they brought the a big zinc sink basin and with ice. And the beer was all put in the ice. And uh, and we had all aluminium bashed mugs, which we drank beer from, rather unhygienically, I suspect. The alcohol probably killed anything that was going. We would have the run, there was a bit of a blether on. Nothing much organized by way of sing song, I remember. Just a bit of a blether get together, nice camaraderie, talking about the run, being, being a bit daft as usual, a bit silly, you know. And, uh, but it was all good, great fun. And if the run was particularly bad, they would tip the bloody country, the zinc bath of ice over the top. So, but that was where we invented sitting on the ice. If you did a shit run, <laughs> you have to sit on a block of ice with your shorts down, your bare arse sitting on the, on the ice. That was particularly uncomfortable, I gather, because I never actually enjoyed that. Particular. I was mostly organizing that it be done to others, I suspect. We also set up the rules, not knowing that they would spread anywhere else, but just for ourselves. And, and rules like, uh, don't pass anybody who thinks he's running. Don't. To step into anybody else's footsteps before he's left them. And, uh, ah. uh, this is not the fucking Olympic Games, what I say, but just a game. It wasn't a race. It was yeah. always, we cheered the last person in, you know, rather than the reverse, as it were. But it was probably 60, 70%, at least 70% military and officers and, and other ranks were, were mixed up in the whole. It was good. How long did you stay there? I stayed there until 1969. 1969, the Sultan of Brunei had all his money invested in the banks in London. The pound collapsed, and all of a sudden, he ended up with no money in his pocket. All work stopped. My business stopped. The military, by then, had to stay. They, they were really worried about Indonesia, particularly wanting to grab this little oil well. They stayed on, and we kept various contacts like that. Anyway, I had to 
look around. And I didn't want to go back to Singapore. Uh, they posted me to Indonesia. We had a couple of couple of big projects to do there. And so I set up offices in, in Jakarta. When you arrived in Jakarta, there was no hash at all, right? No, there was nothing. No hash at all. It was all seen as a very strange thing because the Indonesians had been fighting for independence. They had got their independence to their way of liking in about 1948 or something like that. But the Dutch had not been officially kicked out until some years later. When I arrived in 1969, there was still this concern about the colonial aspect of the Dutch. So wandering around the jungle was just not to be recommended. It was quite a scary thing to do. And the expatriates generally kept to their homes. Uh, difficult to believe now, but that's, that was a, a fact. So that when we, Jeremy Pigeon and I, he was called Burong. Burong is Indonesian for pigeon. Burong and I, because we've been sitting in pub, pubs and really sort of on a Monday evening thinking, you know, what else should we be doing? We should be doing something. And Jakarta was a fairly small town at that time. You could get into the open countryside within 15, 20 minutes. Now it um. takes two to three hours. So yeah. the, the dynamic was totally different then. And we were sitting in pubs and all like that. We said, hey, why don't we do something? So we just started uh, outside where I was staying, which was the chartered bank manager's house. I was living in the guest house there. And uh, it was called, beautifully, poetically, Jalan Telesonic. It's called Jalan something, something, number seven or something. Now it's all boring. It was called Jalan Telesonic. And the area had some executive houses there built out into the in the Bundu, the Ulu, as it was. The whole area was largely banana estates. And then beyond that, into rice fields, a bit of jungle here and there. But, oh, you know, open country, a lot of water, bridges, shiggy, going through villages. Now, the interesting thing was that at the beginning, not thinking too much about the, the native people, they were very worried about all this. They thought we were the Dutch coming back again. Seriously, and they, they started getting very shitty. The police got a hold of us and said, no, 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 no. You can just can't, you can't do this. We said, well, why, why not? The uh, modus operandi was then that we talked to the Kapala Kampong, the head of the village that we were going through. So the, the guys who laid the trail had to go through the village, talk to the head of the village. Indonesia's got this extraordinary democratic system where government is from the from the, literally from five houses, wow. five houses, street, five streets, village, township, on and on and on, all the way up into provinces, all the way up into the president. So when the president claps his hand, it goes right to the bottom. Very clever system. So we had to talk to the, the Lura, as they say, the village head, and explain that we were just idiots. He just couldn't understand why we would get hot and sweaty, go through all this shiggy and around the rubbish dumps and all the rest of it. It was totally incomprehensible mm. for the various Indonesian guys there. It was a little bit difficult, but after a while, I, I compare that with fishing uh, as we did from Singapore later on up in the Himalayas, where the Nepalese women were so delightful, charming and welcoming and you know, of course, it was business. We were buying beer from the oil, but it was just a totally different 
an aura, if you like. Yes. Uh, but that changed in Indonesia, I have to say, when it became uh, bullies, as, we call it, as they called us, white guys. Um, they, bully, they called us bullies. That was the beginning. When it started, how many people were on the first hashes there? And how long did it take to grow larger? It started off with, with probably 10, 12 people. Just with people that we could gather in the chain gang from the, from the bar or something like that. Many who didn't understand what the hell we were doing. But it became a bit of fun, a bit of talk and so on. I, I have no idea how to answer that question. It just grew and grew until we were over, over 150 that used to turn up. But again, that was a men only. It wasn't because of any particular instruction. It was just that there weren't so many women. You know, we didn't get round to the, the idea. And then there'd be a few diehards coming from Singapore and so on. Old farts from Malaysia. Say, no, no, we don't have women. We don't have women. Mm. And so on. Like, and then other people said, why not? And then there was certain women who said, fuck it, we're coming anyway. And they'd just come in and they'd, they'd, they would sit at the back quite quietly. But never ever more than one, two, or something like that. You know? Because what then started, and we're talking a long time ago now, but it sort of became that we tied on to a particular beer, and forgive me, I can't remember it was Anchor or Bintang. The van would come with the beer, all nicely chilled, and a few people would prefer to have their gin and tonic and all that sort of crap. So they would bring their own stuff. You know, it's sort of gentlemen of the hash. It developed, those few characters came, and then the beer came, and then they brought a round table, about a meter diameter thing, with an umbrella with the brand of the beer on it. You know? mm-hmm. And so the beers would be put on there, and they, they would be uh, beer mugs. Nice nice mugs then, all nicely clean, all that sort of stuff. So it was all pretty hygienically set out and so on. And then there'd be people come up, Ross, what the hell is his name? Religious master. Jokey, jokey sort of uh, heads, various departments, if you like, would come and do their bit. And there would be a review of the hash. Uh, what is the circle they call the circle? This would be in the jungle. Lots of cicadas and insects and all that sort of stuff. Very romantic, if you like. But people sort of hot and sweaty, having a few beers. Everybody came by car, of course. So there were all the cars there. Most of the cars are drivers. So the drivers were all in a sort of coterie over there, wondering what the hell was going on. Drunken driving was perhaps 50% of the people went home with beer, which would be classified as uh, drunken and capable driving. And, uh, but um, the car eventually knew how to get home. It wasn't all that dangerous, if you like. Do you recall how the finances work? Was there a membership fee or a run fee? And let's talk about the traditions of hash singing, too. We must have paid a certain sum of money annually or something like that, uh, which would have been hiked up as the beer prices went up because we certainly didn't pay every time we went there. But we had a hash cash who would drum up people who hadn't paid and that sort of stuff so much. And there would be accounts at the end of the year which nobody paid any attention to. You know, they were read out. People just talked over them and, and it was all done in total, total trust or mistrust as it turned out. You know, you know nobody really cared. Um, it's a sort of typical hash way of looking at life. But the beer came in, the beer got paid. There might have, there might have been 
some payment compensation for damage to rice fields. Somebody, if a farmer came and complained that we trampled over his rice fields, you sort of give him compensation. I'm sure that was done, but it was all done without any, you know, any, any statement or anything like that. And it was just known that these things had been sorted out. That's great attitude. How long did you stay in Jakarta then, Hashing? Well, I was there until 1980. Wow. And I had finished my projects. I built about 20 or 30 different industrial plants there. So that was the main thing. But, you know, I did build the British School. A few other interesting, I built the pub, the Georgian Dragon, various other important facilities for the expatriate community, which built up in their way to big empires and so on. Uh, the guy who we built the pub for, he ended up with 17 pubs. Or, I, mean, you know, I mean, just, uh, yeah. yeah. So it, it, it all, we were there at the very beginning, you know, and uh, the high-rise building in Indonesia was Makosgoro, a modest 20 stories, but it was like six stories. I mean, for Indonesia, which was a two-story tiled roof city, all of a sudden, now we have, hundreds if not thousands of high-rise. So in that period of time, we've seen quite a bit of history. We've seen the Jakarta at that time when we were building the, the tower. We were worried about the flooding because the, the main street, Allen Tamron, flooded. When it flooded, people came out of the drains who lived in the drain, who lived in the drains. It was just seeing these people starting out of the drain. And because then they had to lift the whole street. So that upset my, my underground car park, of course. So I, we had all these concerns. People laugh at it nowadays, but that was that was that was one of the problems we had. And these building using using modern materials and so on was a very exciting thing to do. But we had a lot of support from the embassy there, in the sense that they turned up. I mean, we got no no nothing financial anything like that. But then I went back to Singapore because Singapore was going through a major transition. Our jobs, our projects. We had nine offices in six countries. The transition in Singapore was dramatic because it was the headquarters. In the old days, we used to wine and dine with the head of the banks, head of the big commercial houses, and this and the next thing, and they gave us the work. You know, the bank buildings, we had to build this and that and sand gardens and so on. But then there was a transition as the, the young Singaporeans got, got educated university-wise, and they became property managers. And all of a sudden, they gave their projects to fellow Singaporeans. Uh-huh. So... That was a dynamic change from this expatriate company. So I went back. I brought with me some excellent Filipinos, Indonesians, Thais, Australians, and, and Americans to build a team to win competitions because we couldn't get government work, we couldn't get the commercial work, so we had to win competitions. So we had a very successful time there. And you hashed during your time in Singapore with that second ever club? Yeah, it had been going on for you, hashing there. Uh, with O'Rourke and various other well-known characters, as it turned out. I went to the Himalayas with them, and I hashed every every Monday, as far as I can remember. It was extraordinary that, you know, every three months, I suppose, we went across to Malaysia, and we never went to Indonesia from, from Singapore. It was just too far. Logistics were too far. It was always well, well-organized runs, well-behaved, you know. Nothing much to talk about in the sense that they, it was very well organized and the hash runs never any mistakes. Because in Brunei, I invented what they call the hashet, which was, a, what was it, a beer tin with a rabbit on top of it. So if you run a bad run, and it was voted by the, the circle, 
you got awarded the hashing. And compensatory with the cigarette sit on the ice as well. So, but in, in Jakarta, in Singapore, there was nothing much like that there. Hashit word came in after a while, became part of the language. Great running, good running, very efficient running. But of course, you have to be very clever. You have to keep off the trip, busy traffic roads. You never got away from the city too far. But at that time, a lot of big farms, a lot of orchid farms, you could negotiate your way around these areas. Of course, they've all gone now, so God knows what they do. I got fired in four years to the company's surprise. I decided to stay on. I took rather much of the business, had the problem of actually doing it. As a one-person organization, all these competitions which we won, they only knew me. So I ended up loaded with everyone except one, which was the, the British club, which we won, but they left that with that company. I took on the other responsibilities. I also took on my second wife and I had a family there. We started to have a new life in Singapore. And then all that work that I'd got completed and ran out. So a fellow hasher had seen me and on the bones of my arse and sort of said, look, you're doing bugger all. Why don't you in Indonesia? So I said, oh, I've got my wife, I've got my kids. Yes, <laughs> I'll go. So I went across to help him doing bloody contracts, which is not really, I, I normally paid people to do documentation and things like that, you know. But I did that, and and using computer for the first time in my life, that was in 1989, 1989. So I stuck it on my own in Singapore, 1984 to 1988, 1989. Went across to Indonesia on my own for a couple of weeks and did this and the back and so on and so on. And the company there, was sufficiently pressed off from me a job. So I took my wife, kids, over to Jakarta again and started up again. You know, started running again with the hash. And by then, a lot of characters had come through and, and established themselves uh, in the hierarchy there. It was always very, very enjoyable. And then I, I got a bit put off. It became very German, I think. People were a bit put off. You know how it is, becomes a bit nationalistic and so on. And there's a bit of, bit of aggro. I got cold, chilled off a wee bit, then came back a bit, I came back again. But I sat in the outside the circle because having reached a certain age, I wasn't up for the continual beer drinking and all that sort of stuff. I'd have my beer and I'd nurse it uh, on on. I'd go off to restaurants and so on, if that was the way it went. But I'd sit at what we call the outer circle type of thing, out of the light of the, the lantern in the middle of the, in the, in the circle. And I was stood up against uh, an American lady. And I thought, oh, American lady, there we are. How did this happen? She said, hey, my husband, uh, he's too busy. And I've, I used to run in America. But hell, I, I'm, I'm running, you know, feminist and so on. So I didn't want to enter too much into that area. I thought, good on you, there you are. Anyway, she said, what do you do? I said, I'm an architect. She said, oh, well, you probably should meet my, my husband. He's... Uh, doing a competition for a new town. Anyway, I said, yeah, yeah. So I contacted him and he said, yeah, come and see me. So he said, yeah, yeah, why don't you compete? So this was an international competition. I um, put together a competition. Oh, by then, I left this company and started on my own, uh, illegally, without visas. Really um, kept undercover because I had, I had a few jobs to do. But the, the, the Indonesian government was just wouldn't give me a permit because I didn't have a a company to a licensed company.
So I was living much under the clouds there and I put up the competition. And because of the hash, I knew the land. These American smart Alex and the Aussies and all these people, they had no idea what the land was like. It was just a piece of paper, a pretty river here and a river there, freeway there and so on. And they built these gorgeous plants, designed magnificent plants. But I had two lines went right across the plan. One was an oil pipeline coming from uh, an oil field way out in the ocean, came back up through this land and went up to Krakatau Steel. And the huge pipeline, massive, 20 meters wide, right across the site. Diagonally, which nobody saw except hashers. The building of a high-powered tower for high-tension electricity. And the bits of foundations were there, the bits of steel were there. <laughs> must be a high-powered cable. So I just had that in the back of my mind. Because the oil pipeline was the one that you always came home on that you got lost. A very good indi- indicator. Right. And it was imprinted on my mind. And when I, before I did the drawing, I went out to the sign. I had a look at it. Said, okay, so that went right across my drawing. Entirely because of the hash. When they went up, all the drawings are there, all very, very beautiful. Of course, they couldn't go past mine. They'll go to this. Say, no, come back here because the pipeline is here. You can't do that because the pipeline. Oh, we'll ship the pipeline. I said, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's over a meter diameter and there's room for another pipeline. So, no, I don't think so. They had to talk to me. There was the beginning stage of 59. I uh, ended up with a new career in planning. So we planned, planned the city of Lippo Village. It was a great success. And we used to do hashing there and we set up uh, Highland Gathering there on an island which we created. How many islands you want? Yeah, we create two islands. Lakes, how many lakes we created? I think nine lakes. You know, we just created out of our mind this incredible new town. From the hashing point of view, it, uh, it was due to the hashing that, that not just me, but we created a city of 100,000 people now, a quarter million transients every day. That's people come into university the supermarket, in the hospital. It, um, the hash will not get recognition for this, but it, in a very, very tortuous way, it got um, got built um, yes. in that way through the hash. Wow, that's fascinating history and the impact of the hash. Let's talk about your hash name. You said it was an unfortunate hash name. Do you remember how you actually got named on the hash? I have no recollection other than it, it sort of came from, from Brunei. There was always some guy, funny guys who came up with these sort of things. And Ben, I mean, to, to, at that time, it was just Ben, ben Thorne, and they just changed it. And to me, it, 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 uh, it's never been any, any concern at all of mine. Uh, you know, the connotation, uh, there is another meaning of it, which came much, much later in, in the vocabulary of people, and it's not important. And uh, there are worse names. There are worse names. <laughs> You mentioned your wife and kids. When was your wife able to start hashing? Well, the truth is that she was never, never keen on hashing. But my two daughters from my first marriage came across to stay with me in Brunei. And they were members of the very, very first ladies hash called then the Hen House Harriers. And there was a Sikh woman, Mrs. Gill, and a few others who set up the very first hash. I set the run for them because they didn't know. And it was at the back of the British Embassy, British High Commission there. They had the very first one. My daughters ran on that. That became um, quite popular at that time, although I gather from information now, not so popular, but I could be out of 
out of date. I have picked up again. It was a little scary because some women got molested by villagers and uh, uh, it was a little difficult to administer the run, as it were. But that was the beginning of that piece of history. It's the very first lady's fashion world. Aha, so we found the hair on the very first all-women's trail with you setting it and your daughters running it. My daughters still <laughs> don't remember that because they were very young at the time. They were on the hash. And, uh, so, yeah, we were inventing inventing the, our future, you know. Did you get involved with any of the inner hashes back then? Yes, I've been to a, a couple of inner hashes. I went to a Kuala Lumpur one, uh, but I can't remember what... You know, it was about five years ago. It would have been the 80th. And the interesting story there was by then, of course, I was uh, fairly senior. Yeah, I was about, about 80, 85 or something. And then I don't know. The, the, the hilly place where they had it was uh, a lot of quarries and all that sort of stuff. It's quite hilly. And I was getting up the hills here because I keep fit. I mean, I, I, I climb hills and, and things like that. So I was going up there and uh, some of these 20, 30 year olds were absolutely bloody knackered, hanging on to trees. And I was there encouraging them on, you know, so, as one does, as one does. Afterwards, I met a hasha, and his name was uh, Bruce Leach, I think, or Brian Leach. Brian Leach, I think. Either Bruce Leach. And in, in the dog in the Singapore, in the Malaysia Cricket Club. And I'd forgotten all about that. And in the post came a photograph from him saying, Ron Strachan said, send this on to me to identify who this other person was. So I said it was me. And he said, oh, well, very, very interesting. Your name is Benton. You may be interested. My father was a prisoner in China. I have read in the diary a mention of your father's name. Because my father was captured in China or in, in an island and then brought to China. And then he became ill. So they sent him to Thailand. And he died in Thailand on the railway. So... So he sent me a, a page, and there it was written, and, and so died in Changi, all the names. So that was very, very interesting. And then later on, I said, you know, if you could send me the diary, I'd love that. And he said, well, difficult, because um, uh, there are personal things in the, in the diary. I said, quite understand. And so he, he did send the diary to me. And there I was reading the diary, more names with my father's name in there, what he got ill of, why he got ill, and the trucks and all that sort of stuff. And then recently, this is nothing to do with hashing, but, you know, recently I got a, an extract from a magazine, Far East, Prisoner Wharf magazine, and it had a f page in there, fill in details of any prisoner, you know. So I filled in my father's details, sent it to Bangkok, to, to Kanchanaburi. Within seven hours, I got a reply with 11 different cuttings. Of oh. And the interesting thing was, he was very senior in Malaysia, and but he had to stay behind to do the scorched earth policy, burn the factories and meet just in front of the Japanese. So he got into Singapore very late. And, and although senior, he ended up the war as a private in prison. Of course, my mother got a pension as a, a private. You know, so it's always rather upsetting that coming from a fairly, fairly senior position. Interestingly, in these extracts, there it was interesting with Sergeant Benton because he had been updated, because when they were getting the, the groups of prisoners, put them on the cattle trucks to send them to Thailand, you better be in charge, make your sergeant. Kanchanburi, in the hospital there, he was a sergeant. 
So that was an interesting little byproduct of the hash again, you know. But again, hashing to me was more the real absolute pleasure in a foreign country of meeting people and having a chat about something other than business. Because business was never ever spoken about. And it was always just just being silly. I mean, you know, there might be a little bit of rugby to it because uh, it attracted a sort of rugby type of person, you know. But that didn't, wasn't a prerequisite, of course. But there would be a bit of rugby. And together, rugby, Asian rugby and Asian hashing had some sort of fraternity as well. And then uh, I retired, uh, was retired forcibly, when was it, about four years, five years ago. I've been still working in Indonesia from here, from Aberdeen, and I got a new project, a new town in New Zealand, again from contacts that I've made before, you know, and so on. That's the sort of story. You know, I, I haven't hashed here. I have a difficulty of keeping my breath going after a couple of hundred meters. At uh, 89, I think I can I can uh, hold my head up and, and feel fairly relaxed about the idea. We go uh, mountaineering and so on and uh, following the dogs, keep the dogs walking every day. So, But, you know, it's, it's the mountaineering when we were young and the hashing and so on and the Scottish country dancing one did it kept kept us going, you know, it keeps many of us hashers going at this rather late middle age, as we call ourselves now. Yes, you're a key part of the first generation of hashers post-war. Yeah, we still still have a lot of contact with hashers in Perth, Melbourne, Sydney, one, there's one or two in America. We know we just have through Facebook and things like that. Who are a couple of the older hashers from those times or people you are still in touch with? Burong, Burong, yeah, Burong. Yeah, Jeremy Pigeon, Burong. He died that early. Yeah, uh, Ronnie Strachan lives 10 miles away from me. Yeah. He still wanders around. I think his legs are getting shorter because he's running so much. Now. I think he's getting... He has been forced, of course, to stay indoors. At our age, we just uh, were a little alarmed at the, the COVID virus thing. We have kept him away from people. So he has been more protective than I imagined he would be, but he stays at home. I went to an interhash in, uh, has it been in Bali? Yes, actually, there's been a couple interhashes in Bali, including recently. I think we went to an interhash in Jakarta, didn't we? Yes, indeed. There was an early interhash hosted by Jakarta. How old were you when you finally left Asia and hashing in Asia? 80, 80, 80, 85 when I left Indonesia. I'd been going back and forth every three months. Now, I spent all my life overseas, you know, and... Uh, Aberdeen really didn't figure into it at all. In fact, Aberdeen, since 1956, has been a sort of foreign place to me. I went to Kenya, climbed Kilimanjaro and various volcanoes there, and North Borneo, and, you know, kept fit in that sort of way. Uh, extra hashing. But the hashing was always a, yes, yeah, pretty ritualistic Monday. Monday, five o'clock-ish. Have you held on to any hashing t-shirts or other hash gear and memorabilia from over the years? Lots of hash memorabilia. The only thing that I'm sad about is I'm the first guy to run 100 runs in Brunei, and I created for myself a hectocourier mug. I don't know. That's gone. That's gone. Uh, wow. but, uh, a few hash shirts, hash T-shirts. You know, we keep five 50 hash T-shirts, I suppose, around. Yeah. If you're going through your closets and you find any of these old, remarkable hash t-shirts and they spur any questions, perhaps we can do a quick video revisit and see what you dug out. My wife will be very pleased to see them on the way out, I think. <laughs> I'll dig them out. I hope, I hope they haven't been 
given to Heart Foundation or whatever, you know. I hope not. Other than nostalgic use, they have really no great function. Climate up here in 50 degrees north. <laughs> where, are, where are you reporting from? I'm sitting in Toronto, Ontario, Canada right now. I started hashing 1985, February, in Kuwait, stayed around the Near East, Middle East. I spent the late 80s and all the 90s plus in Cairo, Egypt, and just been hashing around the world for the last 35, 36 years. Yeah, well, I did a bit of work in Bahrain. I also did work in uh, Abadan in Iran uh, for a while uh, under the Shah. And then I did a lot of work in East and West Pakistan, as it was then, Bangladesh. And uh, I see this, Bangladesh has got quite a hash. That was a very, very difficult country at that time because they were going through political problems. And even in West Pakistan then, the problem was I worked on the border. Quite a problem of getting out there because the Indians were only 10 miles away. There was a 10-mile cordon sanitaire. I lent my car to some Pakistanis in the office to go and shoot green pigeon up and down that area there. You know, environmentally, it's magnificent because, uh, you know, there's nobody been there for now 50 odd years. But it was always difficult in these countries. That's the story, Matthew. So, um, Were you able to stay under the radar of the officials and stay out of trouble in Jakarta all those years, able to work everything out so the hash didn't get banned? No, I think, I think it was done in a civilized way. When there was any sort of problem, there was always somebody who knew somebody who was married to an Indonesian woman, and the Indonesian woman would be fronted up and they, da, 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 and that would be sorted out. But I remember the last hash I did was in Brunei when I went back to, it was a St. Andrew's Scottish function, a, a Burns Night. You know what a Burns Night? Ah, a Burns Night Supper. Yeah, I've been to many of them. Great event. Burns Supper. So I was invited there back to give a speech. I spoke about the old days and so on and so on. Now, when would that have been? That would have been 1999 uh, or somewhere like that. I went on the hash there. You know, they promised to shepherd me, give me a good run. But you know, the hash is normally a pretty airy fairy about responsibilities. Although Brunei was always, when you brought a new hasher, your obligation was to look after him. If it was lost, your job was to go and find him. Your responsibility. So I had this guy meant to be responsible for me. And it was up into the jungle. Halfway through the run was a, what the hell do you call it in America? A, a booze-up place. And they had rum and beer and all sorts of stuff in the middle of the jungle. I was not prepared for, for any of this. Being an elder statesman and so on like that, I thought, I'd, but anyway, it was well-laced. And I had come back a little unsure back over the, they had set up trail around the lake, very flat, but the lake was flooded, couldn't go, so we had to go over the mountain. I, first of all, I fell into a big trap with spikes and all the rest of the pigs and broke my ankle. Yeah, wow. the, the ankle bone. I had to get over there and back. It wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been more than a couple of miles, I suppose, but I came back with, on the arms of two Chinese runners, much appreciated. Anyway, I got hold of the doctor, and the doctor said, yeah. No, it was, the doctors were closed. I was flying each day. So we made a walking stick. I got on the plane and I arrived back in Jakarta and just went and see a doctor and eventually got the pins put in, which I still feel today. So I that was my last hash on a bloody pig trap. So your final hash souvenir or metal pins in your ankle. <laughs> yeah, that was that was fun. But but you know, great memories. And there was survival. Best of our environments. It was never 
hostile, but always exploring, always exploring. So we never really, really knew where we wanted to go. So, you know, where there was floods rising, one run in Jakarta, I had a magnificent run. Cross a river, up there, around, another little river there. I can see it today. Paddy Field came back, and, you know, and that's an area. There's the run. So off they went, off they went away. Around. In the time that they were out, the river rose about 10 feet. So there was no way out of it. But we had to hold hands and come across because some had no couldn't swim. I'm over dramatizing that this didn't happen, you know, very often. But flooding did was a problem. You later sort out the trail, wrecking the trail a few days, a week beforehand, and then when it came there, you think they just can't make it because of flooding. The citizenry, they once they got to know what they were what these idiots were doing, we were looked upon with some compassion as we trunched through and some people making a bit of a meal of it. And shortcutting masters SCVs was sort of invent I don't know if they were invented long before that, but became a bit of a cult, particularly in Jakarta where the old farts used to just do the shortcut. They knew the countryside so well. Although Jakarta was a very, very big city, different country, mountains, seacoast, beaches. Anyway, there we are. Gordon, Bent One, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And it's fun to hear how after five, six decades, so many things are still the same. You sound like I'm talking to someone who was on a hash with last week. FRBs, SCBs, sitting on the ice, singing around the circle. It's amazing that so many of those traditions that you started back then live on and now across all the continents, still going strong. Well, we reckon, without the data that you would have, if from that first beginning, we have over a thousand hashes probably in Indonesia now. We would have a Monday hash for men, then a Wednesday hash for women. We'd have a Thursday hash for drinkers, you know, people who say, Friday hash for, thank God it's Friday, and then weekend hash for the kids. So that, that would be every month or something like that. It became, we thought then, it might be the fastest growing sport in the world. But then we didn't want to use the word sport because we didn't look upon it in any way competitive. As I say, we cheered in the last person. We try and kept that tradition. But I am out of date, Matthew. I am out of date. I think you would recognize and feel comfortable and fit right in with almost every hash that you dropped in around the world today. Comforted that all those traditions that you started and that vision of what hashing really is has lived on. American hashes a little bit more rowdy and vulgar maybe these days, but in general, the hashing attitude stays on as it was and has grown organically. Well, it was just been an organic growth. And I think it's to do with just the need, particularly in developing countries and so on, where we have these people going in and it starts up and it's fantastic. Now, the last hash I did in Kuala Lumpur on that commemoration was uh, type A hash, all Asians taking to it well and hoping that they will not turn it into a, a booze fest, which it quite easily can just move into that and become ugly. A booze fest is fine as long as it doesn't turn ugly. We're all in together type of thing. We're all trying to survive in the, our various parts of the world. It's difficult to justify it or explain it away, and we don't need to. Wow, what history. 55 years. Thanks to Bent One, Gordon Benton, for dropping by the podcast today. This is the On On Podcast. Stay tuned for more talk, Hash House Harriers history, Hash House Harriers stories, and voices. This is the On On Podcast. Until next time, On On, this is Ra. To close the circle, here's the Hash Anthem sung by Mother Hash. Swing low, sweet child.